Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's a Mike Calder show. It's 1025 The Bone. My wife's afraid to come in the garage. Of course. Oh, I would be too. She's afraid of breath. breath. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I bought two books recently. One I bought an impulse buy. My daughter bought a book about um, Anne Frank and Rosa Parks. My wife bought... My wife bought... What's her name? Jessica Simpson's autobiography. And I was like, I feel like I should have a book, too. So I bought Sebastian Bach's autobiography, and I'll probably never read it. I don't even know why I bought it. But then I bought this book on Amazon, and I've already started to read it. It's called Nothing But a Good Time, an uncensored history of the 80s hard rock explosion. The author, one of the co-authors of that book, Tom Bojour, joins us right now. Tom, how are you, buddy? I'm doing great. How are you? Thanks for having me. I want to tell you, and I bet you would probably want to know this, is that uh, the reason why I bought this book in addition to being a fan of this music in this time, is Keith Roth, the DJ on Sirius on the hair metal station. Uh, he was talking about it. He talked about the anticipation of buying it, and then when he got it, how happy he was reading it, and he actually inspired me to go out and get it. And I don't even know that guy, but I'm just telling you, because uh, if I wrote a book, I would want him to talk about it. <laughs> he was putting you over big time. Oh, that's great. I, I owe him a beer. Yeah, He's somebody we'd he, he's actually in, you'll you'll get to it as you get through the book, but he's actually interviewed in the book as well because he was he would go see Twisted Sister in the early days, and he knew Zach Wild and all of these cats like back in the in the early mid '80s. So he's part of the story. Even I got to be honest, with you, I'm very surprised you guys didn't interview me because uh, I don't know about Keith, but I am uh, in a winger video. Thank you very much. Yep, that's right. Wearing overalls. I apologize for the omission. <laughs> uh, this was my time of music. This is when I. This is the bands that I loved, and I would imagine for you to write a book about it. You and Richard probably were in the same boat. You probably were like, "This is the time that we love," and uh, then went out and did the research. I, I would imagine it took you a couple of years to put all this stuff together, right? It took. It took from sort of like the when we broke dirt to the to the day we handed in. It was almost four years. Um, it was a long time because, I mean, we, we interviewed um, over 200 people for it, you know, and yeah. some of those, you were just mentioning Sebastian Bach. It took like about a year to get an interview with him just because he's busy and stuff. So, yeah, it took it took a long time. And, and what you're saying is true, like sort of what dro- drove us through it, because it is such an immense task where there are times where you're like, oh, my God, this is never going to get done, is that it's the music we grew up on. It's the music... That sort of that music that enters your brain when you're 13 is going to yeah. be the one that that owns it. And for me, that sort of like that passion of being the kid who was watching these videos on MTV and watching Headbangers Ball and stuff. That's what drove me and what drove Rich through the process. Because like it's sort of like a Make a Wish thing where you're like, 
I am interviewing everybody that I thought was the coolest person <laughs> when I was 15. You it's, know? How, it's how I feel in this job every day. It's the best thing to do is have the opportunity to talk to these people that you love and you admired. Uh, let me ask you about Sebastian Bach. Now, I've, I've interviewed him in person on the phone. Uh, he's got a little bit of a, a tie here to the Bay Area. At one point, his brother played goalie for our, our hockey team. Uh, I like him as a person. But I would imagine that it's easy to say that Sebastian Bach may be the biggest asshole in all of rock and roll music. <laughs> and, I'll t- and I'll tell you why. Because Skid Row was a v- hugely popular band, and I'm from, the, I'm from New York, so I, at the time that they were big, I was in New York. Hugely popular band playing Giant Stadium with Bon Jovi and uh, then has a follow-up album that just completely progressed ahead. Like, they could have kept up with the changes in music, I think. But they would rather be playing small clubs with different singers than to get back. The money that could have been made with all the bands that reunited and Skid Row's like, no thanks. That just showed me he had to be the biggest jerk-off ever. I think um, he's a very... Uh, first of all, when we finally got him to... When I got him to interview him and I did like 90 minutes, he was, he was great and very honest and stuff. I think... Um, and we talk about this in the book. He's definitely a person that you would... You know, in today's terms, probably diagnosis like ADHD and like yeah. oppositional and like, you know, he's like hyped all the time. And right. when we interview him and when people talk about him in the book, he's super hyped. And it's hard to imagine that all of that fame being the lead singer in the number one day, de- it was the biggest debut in Atlantic Records history. The dude is like 19 years yeah. old. Yeah. Crazy. Do you know what I mean? Like, and he's the best looking guy and he's the best singer in this giant band. So, you know, clearly it did a number on him, I think. Uh, It it feels like he's evolved now, but I can, but it definitely, you know, there's stories in the book where he, he definitely got a little bit out of control at that time and was like, (laughs) you know, so I think there's definitely, there is, there are reasons that the other guys, um, you know, haven't done it and why he hasn't done it. But I mean, I think the best of us would have gone like Lord of the Flies in that situation. Like just basically, basically being the king of the world and being encouraged to do so. You know, um, that's sort of what he mentions too. Like just to get like, he's like, you know, when I threw that bottle into the audience, when, you know, back in the day, there was this huge thing where he did that and he heard a fan and it was terrible. He's like, he's like, every time I did that, we sold more records and there was like a magazine cover, like rock's biggest bad boy. So he's like, what was I supposed to do? I was 18. I felt, I thought this was what people wanted from me. So it's definitely an inter- interesting psychological experiment. But, uh, you know, when I, when I first heard about this book, I thought it was going to be a, uh, a book about all the sexcapades of all these guys over the years. And that, and that also would have been a good book, but this is actually way better. It's more, it's more interviews, more stories directly from the source. Not most of these are not third-party stories. I mean, you're actually talking directly to these people, and uh, and you, you know, I and, the, and a lot of these guys, to some people, like I know you talked to the guys from Tough. Like, there's there's probably bands in here that were nearly as popular as the uh, Skid Rows of the world, but also had a huge run during those years. And you you reach out to all these people. Yeah, I mean, we thought it was important for to to, to your first point, like. When the book is at its best, you feel like you're, you're in the room with like a whole band, yeah. be a White Lion or 
or Trickster Later or Skid Row or any of these bands, we want it to feel like you're like at like a table and they're telling the whole story of the band together. So, and honestly, like the sex and stuff is is fun, but it's also you know there's only so many ways that you can do that you know physically and stuff. So it, it gets repetitive. So the we felt like the stories were more interesting, but we definitely um, you know wanted to cover the less known bands, maybe like Faster Pussycat and things like that, who we think are great. And also the bands who came later, like there's a big interview in the book with Steve Brown from Trickster, you know, a guy who came in late in the game and sort of, sort of had this very interesting rocket ride that only lasted like a year. And then grunge came in so we wanted to get all different perspectives like that that was one of the things with trickster i'd seen trickster in concert a bunch of times and steve was one of those guys where they kind of i wouldn't say the band was manufactured but they definitely wanted to put together they put him together and then they wanted him to be uh to lie about his age right they wanted to say the trickster was just like a bunch of high school kids and they wanted him to do that and then they they went out and they toured and they worked with all these great bands and then you're right then grunge came in and yanked that away and i remember me and my buddies at the time trying to sit around when trickster was at its heyday going i bet you they only make about 40 grand a year as they go out on the road i mean they're not getting big deals right you mean now or back then no back then i mean like like, back like then I'll, I'll i'll tell you first of all like steve brown from trickster they actually were like high school kids like they the A and R guys would come out to their house in Paramus, New Jersey, uh-huh. to like to like try and sign this band, and like their mom would make them the A and R guys like iced tea and stuff. <laughs> so they were like they were like eighteen, nineteen. Like I think Steve Brown was nineteen, eighteen when he got signed. He barely made it out of high school, but his dad was the assistant principal, so like he kind of like worked some angles. Yeah, but Steve, Steve Brown is one of those like happy endings in this thing because he actually like was a smart and did like some publishing deals and stuff. So he kind of like walked away with a million bucks, you know, and he, uh. it's funny in the interview, he's like, Oh yeah, dude, we totally like, you know, like he knows that he's one of the fortunate few who sort of like had the savvy to, to, uh, but like a lot of those guys, no, they made no money or they ended up making one record getting like basically tackled by grunge and being in debt. And then also not being able to ever say they were in these bands because you weren't allowed to talk about it for 10 years. Who's the, who's the saddest story? Who's the one per- person that you... Like, for different reasons. Like, you, there's a lot in here about Faster Pussycat. And we played... We played a, we did a couple of gigs with Faster Pussycat um, over the years through radio. And uh, they see... Like, when I see Fat Tamey Down on stage with weird clown makeup <laughs> on, I go, this is not a good ending for this guy. What happened? Yeah. I mean, he's, you know, he actually seems like in, in, in good spirits though. Like it, it's funny, like all of these guys kind of do because they're out there working. I think the two saddest stories in the book are really Robin Crosby from rat. Yeah. Um, who, who succumbs to, you know, complications from AIDS and from being a, uh, a heroin user. And like, by the time he hits the end, he's like 300 pounds, you know, and, and, the producer, Bo Hill, who did all the rat records in the book, he says, like, you know, he looked like Jabba the Hutt. But, and the only thing you could tell is just like you were to, like, put just a piece of paper over his head and look at his eyes. You could still tell it was Robin Crosby, you know, like, because wow. he had those blue eyes. It's that. And then Janie Lane from Warren, who really just couldn't appreciate 
that he had had a great career and just, you know, cannot pull it together. And you, you see that in the book, like sort of when Warren falls apart, that he just can't hold it together. And he was, I thought, a really great songwriter and talented guy. And he could not get past the fact that people referred to him as the cherry pie guy. He just couldn't yeah. get it out of his head. So to me, those are the two saddest because they're people just like with all this potential and and success and they just can't enjoy it. You know, they just can't pull out I, of the tailspin. I really like Warren. I think Warren's one of those, was one of the better bands and cherry pie is a dumb song, but you got to love it when it comes on the radio, but the rest of their stuff. And then their last album, they had some pretty good, Lyrically, like they absolutely changed, and they were ahead of that whole uh, hair curve, and, and and I think some of these bands could have evolved and could have hung around, and it's sad that Janie uh, didn't make it through that. Uh, the name of the book, let me just tell everybody, is nothing but a good time: the uncensored history of the '80s hard rock explosion. Now, uh, in Tampa, we had a club called the Rocket Club here, and I grew up in in New York, and uh, you know, there's New York clubs and there's Jersey clubs and all that. But I was I was graduating high school, so I didn't get to go to a lot of those places. But you'd hear all these stories, and then all of a sudden I move here to Tampa, and these great bands that I love are playing the Rocket Club. So a band, so I saw Bon Jovi at uh, Giant Stadium in June of '89, and then I saw Skid Row at the Rocket Club in in September of '89 here in Tampa. It was amazing. It was it was kind of like our. Um, you know, Troubadour or those bands on the on the right. strip where we got to see these guys play, and it doesn't seem like there's any more of that. It doesn't seem like there's any club anymore where you're really going to go see great bands performing live on a on a daily basis. Probably not. I mean, certainly not like of like rock music. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think I, I think that that's sort of what really distinguishes that time is like that. That was the time, maybe one of the last times that like guitar driven rock and roll, like fun rock and roll was the the dominating force and so where there were clubs that catered to that stuff like you may go there might be a nightclub where there's bands playing where, where you are but they might not be rocking so hard and and performing like they're in, they're in an arena even if they're in a club uh you know i don't know if i haven't come across his name yet but we, we just mentioned him uh recently on the show did you were you able to catch up with or do you know about mitch malloy I know about Mitch Malloy, but we did not talk to him for the book. Why do you ask? I'm, I'm well, because he was one of those guys where they made him like he was going to – every Metal Edge magazine you picked up, they, you saw this guy with this long, blonde, curly hair, and he was really good-looking, and he played guitar, and they were making it like he was going to be the next big thing, and then at one point he was going to be the singer for Van Halen, and uh, he was replacing other – and then all of a sudden he just never amounts to anything. And it just goes to show you that no matter how much they want somebody to be a star, if people don't accept them, he's just, it's just not going to happen. I mean, I think that that's one thing that that you see in this book, where people, when, especially like in the L.A. bands, but all over the place, where people are playing musical chairs and trying to find the right combination of people is like chemistry is real. Yeah. And when the when the Guns N' Roses finally gets their definitive lineup, or when Skid Row gets Sebastian, you know, instead of Matt Fallon, who was their previous singer, who was perfectly good, but he's not Sebastian, you know, when that thing locks together, or even with Poison, I, I, I'm actually a big Poison fan, like when they get CC, like they have to choose between CC and Slash yeah. at the auditions, when that thing locks in and there's chemistry, that's when you look 
at a band and like as as us as young people when we were watching this stuff, you actually buy into it. You're like, that's a gang that I want to be in, you know. And I think you can't manufacture it. That is the you know the great intangible. You know, they can throw all the money they want at a band that doesn't have like that thing, and it's just not going to happen. Yeah, uh, some of these stories, uh, like the, the slash with the poison and all that, some of these stories that are in this book and things that you'll find are amazing, things you knew you didn't know. Is George Lynch uh, talking about how it's, what a struggle it was for him, and he's like one of the most phenomenal guitar players. Uh, if you love these bands, you'll love these stories, and you'll love hearing it directly from uh, these guys while, they, while Tom is uh, doing the interview and uh, uh, Richard as well. And I, I find this, you know, having watched these bands as a fan, having interviewed a lot of them on the radio show, it's great to hear these stories, I, I, especially now after the fact. And I, we always say, you always say it was grunge that killed them, but I think, you know, what killed it even more was bands like, uh, like I could have done with Bull, I could have listened to Pearl Jam and Poison, like I do now, and been happy. But it was, it was, um, What's his name? The guy we just uh, the guy, to my mother. That guy, David. Uh, uh, no. Oh no, that's Aaron, Aaron Lewis. Lewis. Aaron Lewis. <laughs> and whenever uh, stained, that's Stain. what. Real, oh my god, crying about their parents and uh, you know whining about everything. That was what really I think. I'm like, what? Five minutes ago, we were just listening to this guy sing about boobies and beer and and getting drunk and sleeping with two girls. Warren has a song called Love in Stereo about having the threesomes. It's the best song ever. And you're like, what's wrong? That's that's what we want to hear about. Nobody wants to hear and sit here and listen to some guy complain about how we all had bad parents. Who, who cares? <laughs> that's what I think really killed the whole thing. I think it was a it was a rough ride for, you know, like after I think also what killed it was that I think by the end of the run, you know, by like 91, these bands have been going for 10 years and yeah. and it, it, to all credit to them, you know, um, most of them, and they even admit it in the book, were not at that point doing their best work. But to your point, too, they, you know, when Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains came out and stuff, they were totally, all the guys in like Skid Row were like, oh, we love these bands, you know, and the guy, you know, Jerry Cantrell from Alice in Chains had been in a band with a dude from Pretty Boy Floyd. There was no feeling that it had to be either or right. for a while. And then suddenly, like you're saying, like this music, and that's one of the reasons we want to do this book, like like glam metal or whatever you want to call it, it, it basically just gets canceled, you know. Yeah. Like and you, and it was a, it was the most brutal end to any genre that you've ever seen. You know, at one point, Brian Forsyth from Kicks, who I love, is talking about how in like 1994, he goes to audition for the Wallflowers, and oh. you know. And Tix had had a platinum record, Kicks a number nine oh, single. Yeah. yeah. And he goes to audition for the Wallflowers, and he can't, he doesn't even mention that he was in Kicks because that's how toxic <laughs> it was to have, you know what I mean? Like, you yeah. couldn't even, it was like, it, like, it was like the worst thing you ever could have done was to have been in a successful <laughs> glam metal band. band. By the That's way, so Kicks and uh, Vixen are playing down in Fort Myers in June. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you got to go. Uh, definitely. Good it's, live. A, it's on a Tuesday, though. That's the thing that sucks. <laughs> uh, who is the biggest band, you think? The biggest band? The biggest band to come out of that era, of, in your opinion? I think it's. I think it's. It's. It's either Motley. I think it's Motley. I mean, Guns and Roses might have ended up being bigger, but in terms of the band that epitomizes that era, 
and makes it goes all the way through. It kicks off the era and stays strong all the way through with hits. It's it's got to be Motley. Plus, yeah. how many people they influence? You know sure. what I mean? Like, yeah, I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you that one hundred percent. Also, little side note: uh, I saw Vince Neil here do a solo show, and uh, it was right when I first got to the station, so fifteen years ago. And uh, he he had gone drinking with the boys before the uh, show. And when he got on stage, he was so drunk and fat that he couldn't even sing. And uh, he fell off the stage after like oh the third, off the third song. He literally fell right off the stage. And uh, I waited a year or so later to get him on the phone and talk to him and bring that up to him. And when I did, Vince Neil said to me, I said, Vince, you fell. You were so drunk, you fell off the stage. And Vince Neil said, well... That's rock and roll. And I went, you're damn right it is. You're damn right it is. And no apologies. No, no apologies whatsoever. And and I don't hold it against him. I, I saw Vince Neil at one of the best shows ever. He was so rock and roll, he fell off the stage and got up and was like, later. <laughs> and that's it. Uh, what, a, what a great era, man. What a good time it was for, for music and fun, but mostly stories. The business behind it, you find out about record deals in this book and how bands got their, how they got their deals or didn't get their deals, how things uh fall apart is always interesting and then i there is that whole section in there where you guys talk to all the guys from skid row about those skid row incidents where sebastian bach had the age shirt and the uh, the bottle throwing incident uh, i would i would definitely check it out it's called nothing but a good time the uncensored history of the 80s hard rock explosion by tom bojour is joining us and richard uh beanstalk beanstalk is that what that says Beanstalk, yeah. Oh, that's an adorable name. <laughs> um, and and I, I also understand that um, you guys, you asked, you tried to pursue some people that were probably a little bit maybe past, like like Bon Jovi. I know you wanted to get John Bon Jovi on. And uh, he's he's a pretty hard get, but he was, he's been the guy who has been able to survive and change with the times to make sure his band stayed, uh, you know, stayed uh, relevant all these years, which I think is the hardest thing for those guys to do. Yeah. I mean, we knew going in, there was a couple guys like we, we made the request to be thorough, but we knew we weren't going to get him. We knew we weren't going to get John and we knew that there was no way we we're going to get Axel, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's just because, yeah, it's like what you're saying. And particularly with John, he's managed to transcend that era, you know, in his mind, John Bon Jovi is like with Bruce Springsteen and Bono. Right. And he's not he's not with Vince Neil. Right. Um, and so and you know and that it's worked for him. Look, he's you know he's he it's completely worked for him. So I, we knew that he wouldn't want to be like talking about Skid Row opening for him and stuff like that. It's too bad because really in the book, everyone who talks about John. So he's kind of there as like this character floating around because right. he was so important. But like from the guys in, in Cinderella, um, you know, even the guys in Skid Row who ended up having some business disagreements with them, but like to a T they're like Bon Jovi was the best band to open for. They gave you all of the lights you needed. They gave you all the stage space you needed. They made sure you had, you were totally set up. He helped so many bands. So he actually comes up oh, great in this book, which is, kind of a testament because it would have been easy for people to like poke at him because he's sort of, you know, at the top of the mountain, you know, yeah. and that's usually where you start. And he really comes off great, but we knew, like we sent in one request, we didn't get a reply and it wasn't worth like, you know, trying to, and, and the other people in Bon Jovi, like they know not to talk. 
That's so, the thing. Unless you get your hands on Sambora, I bet he's got some things to say. <laughs> we, yeah, we. I, I had like six canceled. Like I had six interviews scheduled with him or something, and they kept getting canceled, and then I gave up. We got Chico um, for like a short interview, but it was just that that band – has moved on from they're not interested in sort of the, the the nostalgia for this era. So so be it, you know? Yeah. Well, look, I find the book uh, really interesting. There are a lot of people listening to the show were around for those Rocket Club days, and certainly uh, the big station we had in this area that played all this music that we, uh, you know, no matter how old you are, you grew up on them. Uh, there's a forward in here by Corey Taylor of Slipknot, uh, who, you know, is in the middle of all that as well, even though he doesn't play that kind of music. Uh, the book is really good. This is Tom Bojo. Richard uh, Beanstalk is the other author, and uh, you know, I would say I picked it up on Amazon. I hope that makes money for you guys. Uh, it came right to my house the next day, so if anybody wants it, you can go get it right on Amazon. They'll deliver it right to you. Hey, uh, Tom, thank you for being on the show, and uh, good luck with the book. And make sure you buy Keith Roth the beer because he really put you guys over. I definitely will, and thank you so much for having me. Good talking, to you, buddy. Take it easy. Nothing right, later. Bye. but a good time. Uh, I really, I, I skipped around. Which is the way to do it? Because you could. Because I don't care what Blackie Lawless has to say, but I do care about what uh, Skid Row has to say. So you could jump through the book and read uh, different areas. It's funny you bring up Blackie Lawless. I was going to ask him if he interviewed Chris Holmes, the guitar player for Wasp, because he was a lunatic. I think he did, and there is Lita Ford stuff in there. And was yeah. he married to Lita Ford? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, there is a lot of good. It's it's a lot of bands that you know, and some of the ones that if you weren't a big hair band, you might not know. But their stories are so interesting that you want to hear about it. Um, uh, yeah, I would check it out if you like music music stories. I know we must take a break. We're running probably a little bit behind, I would say, huh? Mm-hmm. All right, hold on one second. I'm trying to do ten things at once here before we wrap it up. Um, I know I have to tell you about the fact that today is today. Remember the other day I screwed it up and I forgot about uh, right. the beer day? Yeah. I was a day ahead. It was. It turned out it was New Beer's Eve. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Nothing. Nobody. <laughs> it was New Beer's Eve, but uh, today is National Beer Day. So if you're out and you're celebrating, if you go to lunch, you have an extra reason to hoist an extra Budweiser or Bud Light or whatever you're drinking in the air and say uh, Happy National Beer Day. Make sure you go and celebrate, whether you're doing it at the bar, whether you're doing it at the convenience store, or you're stopping by on your way home to get some takeout food or whatever you got. Hoist a Budweiser in the air today and salute National Beer Day because we are celebrating it today. Yesterday was New Beer's Eve. I can't stop saying that for some reason. <laughs> it's the Mike Calton Show. We'll take a quick break. It's 1025 The Bone. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.